Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. William, your favorite historian, one of your favorite historians, is this fellow, uh, Peter Wilson. You read his book. He wrote a book on the Thirty Years' War back, it was about 10 years ago he wrote it. He wrote another book called Heart of Europe about the Holy Roman Empire. And recently, I just went to Barnes & Noble like a month ago and found this. He wrote a book called Iron and Blood, a military history of the German-speaking peoples since 1500. Yeah, and he doesn't mean just Germany. And I was surprised at that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, the the book, it's a, a massive book as his, his usually are. It covers the period of 1500 to today. And it covers, as you said, Switzerland, Austria, and Germany. Now, there's a bunch of things about this book that's interesting, but let's just start with the idea of the scope. So... The time scope, 1500 to today, and then the, the country scope is all the German-speaking countries. Now, to me, my initial thought on this is like, for one, I think that's awesome. I, right. I like the ambition of telling history this way. But on the other hand, writing a history of the three German-speaking countries of today, going back to 1500 when they didn't exist, right? and it, it doesn't it would make sense if you were writing a literary history, because literature is something that's really independent of government. So a literary history, you're writing about uh, Schiller and Goethe and Fichte and Kant. I mean, well, philosophy, I mean, mainly poets so and, yeah. and novelists, but maybe you might also bring but there's a continuity philosophers there. too. Yeah. But all these people are reading one another's books. So it makes sense to write a literary history of of Germany or of German, German literary histories. There's yeah. many of them. It's an easy, easy um, continuity. Or literary histories of France. There's many of those. English literary histories, many. But a military history. Now, mili- this is a, a sort of a sub uh, topic of political history. And it is uh, problematic, <laughs> not in that gay way, but problematic right, right. in the sense that it doesn't really make sense because, for one thing, it depends on your your point of view, your what age you're going to pick. Mm. If you pick today, you look at Swiss military history, you'll say, okay, well, Switzerland, totally different from the rest of these, from Germany and Austria. Uh, hasn't been in a war since like 1840. It And then you look at Austria, it's like, well, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a thing until 1918. Austria has been not really an important country since then. It was an appendage to Hitler's Reich. It became part of Hitler's Reich. Um, but then Germany uh, has been its own thing. And, and Wilson does kind of criticize the con- the conventional historical view on this. Yeah. In the sense that like German military history and German history generally is synonymous with Prussian history. Right. And they, he also. Because that, but that's you, that only makes sense if you're looking back from today. No, true. And then he uses the best example he uses for that specific that that whole topic there is the use of mercenary warfare throughout Germany's history or all the principalities of Germany and whatnot. Right. And he said that the big, the big opposer to, um, uh, German, you know, princes kind of lending out their forces or whatever was Prussia. Prussia didn't want to do the, the mercenary thing. Uh, but obviously as we know, the Lensknecht and all these other groups, uh, throughout Lan- Lensknecht were like yeah. the, uh, the very colorful looking soldiers of like 1500 yeah, Renaissance. Germany. Um, did you know much about them? They, I, I know very little about them, but basically they, the Lansknecht armies were known for their flamboyance. Yes. Flamboyancy. Flamboyance. Yeah, flamboyance They like sure. to wear colorful clothes. They like to uh, strip off the one leg 
because you'd be holding a pike and so you'd strip off the the pant leg on on one leg the leg that wasn't um forward so i guess the uh used to be the right leg right you put yeah. your left leg forward and you'd strip off the leg to keep to, so that they would have maximum mobility and some mm. of these guys would strip off like up to the butt cheek like they have <laughs> their ass like, exposed uh it's like really weird and uh, it's mainly beyond reason dude <laughs> it's very it's extremely homoerotic yeah. i mean and they oh and they'd also like take their swords and they would rather than slinging them on the the right side like normal people because mm. you draw on the right or the you know the romans used to put it on the left because you can draw if you're holding a shield, you can draw quicker from the left. Yeah. They would string it right down the middle. So it was like over their dick. It was like a <laughs> cod piece. And they'd like swagger around with their giant sword dangling. But that was, that was the time period, though. The Renaissance was, was, a, was an era of abundance in Europe, right? As far as fashion was concerned and, and like the spice trade and all kinds of things. We get into this all the time. But like that was like big time. And the mercenaries were reaping all the benefit of this throughout Europe, all the rich princes that were doing all the cool trade in the Mediterranean and everything else and getting all this dumbass money. And we're like, oh yeah, you know what? Now that I've, now that I don't have to just deal with daddy's money, I have my own money for my own trade or whatever the heck else. I'm going to start a war with my cousin, Billy, because fuck him. And so they went off and they started fighting with each other's principalities and whatnot. And we would hire mercenaries to do this. And the Landsnacht were the mercenary units that were hired throughout the German principalities and, and outside of Germany. This wasn't just like, just, it wasn't a German, phenomenon you would have spanish or french or you know like you know balkan or or anybody like throughout europe would hire german specific uh lands and it started with the swiss the swiss started right. this uh just because Which is of where tactics. i mean where you have the tradition of like swiss guards at the vatican is right. from this time when uh of like pike and musket warfare yeah, and they still have these flamboyant outfits the swiss guard today still yeah. have these flamboyant outfits and the reason being is because back then the amount of fabric and and uh the dyes for the different cloths and everything else that meant there was a status symbol obviously in in old world europe and so the landsnack being they basically in the same fashion pirates did right where pirates would get these giant gold earrings and these flashy clothes and everything else like that when they would accumulate wealth and finance from their from their ravages of, of the world the landsnack would do the same thing and they would dress the most flashy gaudy over-the-top shit they would find in any of these trade cities that they would go to on their leave yes. so you're saying this they word go bonkers landsknecht yeah it uh, country boy i guess or man of the country boy of the country yeah, servant of the country because they they were a lot of times drafted from old uh old serfdom or well peasantry. i'm just i'm just bringing up the etymological point oh, right. here because knecht means boy or servant in german yeah but this is this same word in english over time from old anglo-saxon has evolved to meet to into the modern english word knight oh right yeah so in but in german that word means boy or servant yeah it's, it's, a, it's fairly, fairly derogatory word and uh i mean it can be used derogatory it can be used derogatorily yeah but uh the landsknecht is the yeah boy, the the servant of well, the country or boy of the he's like a basically yeah. he's, he's like the he's he's like the 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 landling <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just like these these people they drum up a militia the man, basically. Yeah, like the Minutemen. But then because then, they started like that, and then it became over time as they had um, basically par- like you know PMCs running around all of Europe at the time. You know, ransom or not ransoming out, but like uh, um, they would you know get contracts throughout Europe, and they would get all this money, and they would they would just so it's it's interesting up. that that Wilson is like. Starting off in 1500, because if you look at Europe in 1500, you look at the German-speaking countries, 
it's really hard. I've often thought about how would you write a history of the German speaking peoples or how would you write a history of Germany? Because I've never found a satisfactory one. I think I've said There's, this in, yeah, in many, previous many episodes, so forgive me, but I'll, I'll restate it. No, but it needs uh, to be said. Writing a history of Byzantium, for instance, it's pretty clear how you write that. You Your starting point is Constantine the Great. It's a little bit hazy at the beginning, like separating Byzantium from Rome, but like you've got a, a contiguous political tradition running from about Constantine the Great or the fall of the West, eh, however you, or maybe you start with Justinian or Heraclius, but you've got a some beginning and then up until 1453. And maybe you end in 1204 with the Fourth Crusade, but there's, there's a clear like trajectory from at least... Uh, Justinian to the Fourth Crusade of like this is Byzantine history, right? And it's a it's a it's one state, it's one culture, it's a continuous uh, line of emperors, and it's a Christian state. It's same ideology. With the German speaking peoples, it's a little bit different. Uh, it's much different because where do you begin German history, and how do you tell it in a way that's balanced and that makes uh, sense? The typical way that German history is presented is a lot like the way American history is presented. It's much more focused on the 20th century. And then uh, as you go farther and farther back, things are considered less and less relevant. Right. So Wilson criticizes this very much. He doesn't like how German military history, particularly popular histories of German uh, warfare, focus on Prussia, starting with, like, say, Frederick the Great or Frederick the First, his father, and then move from there sketchily talk about the 18th century and then a little bit more about the 19th century maybe they mentioned the battle of Vienna against napoleon and then they really start talking about it with bismarck 1871 yeah, but, war. but even then thing, even yeah. then it's like that's a, a way back like maybe you're at like page of a 500 page book you're at you're at 1871 by page like 80 and then, Tops. and then like World War One is over by like page one fifty, and then the rest of it is just Hitler, right? <laughs> which is awesome. Like everybody loves Hitler, right? Uh, and but, the Third Reich, but, but this doesn't, this doesn't feel like. Well, because I was going to say also because like, and there's so much to it. Like there's so much more history than people give it credit for, and I think this is why it relates so much to the United States, is that there's so many different German states, so many different dialects, so many different cultures, so many different heritages, you know, so many different lineages and, and dynasties and everything else like that. Um, and, and kind of how the, the U.S. states are, uh, you have a bunch of different histories that used to be taught there too, but by our own right. hands, including, the, and this is the, the problem with, with the, the German efforts, uh, starting with their Federal Republic, or not Federal Republic, but but basically when they started to confederalize uh, in 1870, right, with, yeah. with Bismarck and that, the end of the end of the three wars um the three german wars of unification but like so when they when they started to do that and they started to um basically institutionalize everything and try to remove all their own dialects and try to consolidate everything into being one germanic uni unifying thing to really because they they really took the, well, the language the, was, was standardized by by the 19th, 19th century but well right but, but, but the, as the far administrations as were still separate yeah uh, it was st you still had like a Wurttemberger army even in 1918 well right yeah and they were trying to that remove was still technically that and all the identities of all the states and everything else over like you know over the course of time because they had really taken the nationalist ideal to its extreme right they were like you know not is it's not just we're not just Wurttembergers or Berliners or right or Saxons or or however it goes we're not Silesians 
were Germans. And that was like the big deal. And so they're trying to remove it. And I think we had like a similar thing happen uh, during reconstruction in the United States after the civil war is where there was, there were ideas of, you know, the individual states and having states rights. And there was like identities. There there was like, there was minor, you know, yeah, like we got in school, we had, uh, you know, Maryland history in fourth grade and we learned the Lord's Baltimore and stuff. And, um, you know, only it's funny, the uh, Maryland state song, is O Tannenbaum the, uh, oh, the Christmas song, but with like really, really like Fed posty lyrics. What? It's really cool. Yeah, they only changed it like a year or two ago. It was. Can you still find it's it? It's Maryland, my Maryland. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> but yeah, all that stuff was very real until fairly recently, even here. But in the German-speaking countries, so if you're looking at the world from like 1500. Or you're trying to write a history, or you're trying to write a history of, of the German-speaking peoples or Germany. I mean, I guess I would start. I would try to say, well, I would go from like the Otto's Otto the first, the first emperor of H-R-E. Germany yeah. that wasn't part of the Carolingian Reich with France. Mm-hmm. But then you still have this problem of like most of medieval German history just ends up being fights between the emperors and the popes. But well, I, mean, I there's just, I I feel like and you can to like, start that that soon. You have to go back further because you can go all the way back to Arminius. Mm, I know, but yeah, you you can. I mean, and uh, many authors have tried, and, and right. Wilson specifically talks about that, like writing, trying to write a history of the, trying to say, okay, I mean, he, this he is these are German book, military, yeah. these are German military traditions. Here's Arminius, and here's Hitler, and here's the line that we can draw from one to the other, and, and that's. Mm, pretty tenuous yeah but it's also easy which is why people do it all the time That's well i mean the only but the only like i was co- able to get away with the categorization that germans are all just militaristic oh okay well yeah i'm getting on to another thing so oh right it wilson his one of his other main points in the whole book is that he is against this idea that germans are specifically militaristic and he's a He's kind of against the the so the Sonderweg hypothesis of German history. This is the idea that unlike Britain, unlike France, unlike mainly Britain and France, that Germany and, and America, that Germany took a different way, Sonderweg, mm. from the rest of Western Europe. And in the sense that Germany didn't go to democracy, Germany went to hardcore integrated awesome dictatorship. And why did that happen? And there's there are a lot of books you can find like uh, the mind of Germany or something. There are a lot of books by Jews uh, of that title or similar titles that I'm always like, oh, this looks really cool. I want to read this. And then I just look at the contents and it's like, oh, German. it's because of the psychological problems with Germans. They're oh, all, God. They all just have a hard on for killing people. My it's fucking like, Freudian. It's take. so it's it's retarded. But and it, and it also the Sunderweg idea is also kind of ridiculous because it only makes sense if you're going to take like British and French and American history as like the norm, it's like, okay, look at, the, look at the, look at the scope of world history. Okay. Well, Britain, France and America did this kind of, we can find some similarities there. Germany was different. Therefore, Germany's totally weird. And it's like, well, wait a second. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that, that, that seems pretty, pretty limited. So Wilson's against that, that idea. And one of the main, this whole book is written as a sort of criticism of the typical idea that we have of like German 
military prowess that yeah. I kind of I kind of got this in like military uh, military history class from a frankly Germanophile teacher <laughs> <laughs> and the idea I mean do you know what I'm talking about do you want to outline this like it's it's the idea that the Germans were a uh, very competent military that they they had to attack first and win quickly just because of their geographical position finances resources all that other fun stuff and because of this there they like organized and this the 20th century bears this out they organized themselves very very efficiently and very ruthlessly wilson's criticism of that is that well that's only true if you're looking at the period of 1871 to 1945 if you look at the greater scope of German history, I'll say a little earlier than that. Okay, well, we'll say Frederick the Great to 1945. Well, no, well, and even and then even, but then well, Wilson, just, Wilson does have a point too that yeah. like before 1871, yeah. Austria uh, was superior. was a, was also a military power right. and wasn't really of that same like Prussian Blitzkrieg mentality. No, it wasn't totally different. But I was going to say for the German thing, it'd be I would say post Napoleon. Um, they started to do that. Yeah, like, after serious. they got thrashed at Yenna. Yeah, they were that like, was, okay, well, we, maybe we need to, like, you know, like really do bad. things a little bit differently. Like, uh, sorry. <laughs> after they got totally stomped on. But no, because all the wars of Prussian, um, or not Prussian, but of, of Prussian, or of German unification, the three wars of the German unification. Oh, yeah. Against, what, let's, let's name them here. Let me think. Or, uh, wait, wait, wait. Don't. Oh, let, me, let me see. Yeah. 1866 against the Danes. Right. Uh, which is such a, a seven, such a slept on as the kids would say. Oh no! Well, 1866 against sorry against the uh, the Austrians with Königgrätz. Wait, 66 was the Austrians? Yeah, okay. the war against the Danes was. Let's see. No, that was because that that's the, 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 the Danes. Yeah, was, that's the second one. Okay, the Danes so are the seconds. It was Königgrätz against the Austrians, Schleswig-Holstein against the Danes, and then 1871 against the French. Getting Alsace-Lothringen. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so. Yeah, so those are the three the three wars of German unification that have been mentioned. I think we've mentioned them actually multiple times in our show. But we just never elaborated on those. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we've never elaborated on that uh, at all for some reason. But because the the one though the the Schleswig-Holstein War is never talked about uh, at all. I think I've ever I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about it um, in history shows or classes or anything else like that. Uh, I got it. I got it in reason. AP Euro. I mean, there's some sweet YouTube clips uh, from a German. There's a show, Danish yeah, movie about that. Yeah, there's like apparently they have a whole show about it. It's like a whole. I think it's like a season or two of that. Like I've always, I've, tried, I've been trying to find it. I can't find it, and I want to see it so bad. Uh, I've only seen pieces of it, but that war uh, spoke a lot to the developmental coming of age of the German militarism that you would then later see in, in the in the first and second world war um, that you know people are talking about oh you know 1870 being uh, one of the, mo- the the new or one of the first modernized wars which it's it's not it was the well, it was one of the biggest culminations in a modernized war. I'm just going to stop you right there like, oh. everybody <laughs> always is like my first modern this my first modern that right. <laughs> and it's like my first modern like whatever like you want to put something in 1000 or 1200 fair the first the first modern uh discovery of america like it, it, <laughs> my all first right. modern light bulb like i, I don't know all like right this, yeah that's fair it, yeah all right that's, it's uh, just a meaningless so the, the first the first one of the first wars that i uh, we really saw the development of rail technology okay now yeah. now 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 this is clear yes okay yeah napoleon didn't have trains no he didn't but moltke had trains and was a total train autist yes <laughs> and it worked phenomenally well uh for the resupply 
against the French. And because, again, they, they were outnumbered. And troop, uh, like, movement, yeah. Yeah, because they were outnumbered a lot when it came to the Siege of Paris. And they had those, those, they had those, they had those, uh, those, those train timetables, like, set up right. Yeah. So they knew they were going to be able to get 100,000 men to Metz by yeah. this fucking time. And, but they, and they did it right. So that was, like, the first... That was like the first German usage of that type of technology, right? Because we saw earlier uh, in that decade with the American Civil War, uh, you still had trains and other types of, of modern technology or you know modern uh, right. or steam technology, post post industrial technology. Uh, but being trains utilized. weren't like a huge thing in the American Civil War. Well, because trains have never been a huge thing in the United States. I mean, we had trains. Don't be wrong. And we and we de that we detrained a lot after the the early 1900s, where we had all those stupid uh, lobbyists with the cars uh, sweeping there in the government. Because you know America does right; they pay money, and then you can get entire civilizational changes made. Right, right. So they took out all of our rail systems and all of our public transportation in order to force cars. Obviously, um, so we used to have a bunch of rails, um, and we they used rails a lot in the Civil War, a lot, a lot. Like oh, we, they did. Okay. Yeah, like they used to the, again it. You're talking about the difference between Europe and the United States as far as the scale is concerned, right? Like it's not the same thing. Like, like well, there's the, a lot, there's a lot more intensity or density of population and and rail lines in Europe, right? Back then, even I mean, even now, yeah. So, so their their ability to scale against the French on the front lines there was easier in that sense right. as compared to say like the Union or the South being able to mobilize vast numbers, especially because they've been well. The rail lines would have gone mainly on the East Coast, North, South, yeah. And then maybe a few lines going west. There was a few going west, but that was like only in certain areas, right? And they, but luckily though, they didn't have to deal with or contend with aircraft in the Civil War. You had like spotters, right, with yeah, balloons, balloons, but right. that doesn't. They weren't like dropping bombs with like Wizard of Oz balloon characters, right? Like that wasn't a thing. Uh, Dorothy wasn't flying over Kansas, you know, just like dropping out you know, little Confederate leaflets or whatever with anthrax or something. That just wasn't happening. <laughs> <laughs> like that didn't happen. Um, but no, so the, you had that type of, um, I would say, quote unquote, modernization or post-industrialization uh, elements that you you didn't see prior to. Um, 1870 with the the uh the, we, I, I, he touches on this in the book too where he doesn't like the concept of them saying prussian the the franco-prussian war it's like it is actually the franco-german war uh-huh right, um, right. you know because it's, yeah. like, it's 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 all of germany mobilized versus france so it's not just the franco-prussian war sure obviously you had prussian leadership but that's just the way it was um so you had you had this you didn't really have um a a really beautifully concerted effort in warfare up until 1870 when it came to the utilization of supply lines and logistics for trains like because again even in the in the united states it wasn't as well organized right it wasn't as, as well refined at the time it was still new technology yeah. you didn't have it i mean i i broke it down i do know that the prussians were looking at the american civil war oh yeah and and kind of doing uh, AARs on, okay, well, this is what happened in the Civil War and we need to, like, apply these lessons here. Yeah. So it was, like, it wasn't like these two things are totally isolated no, from No, definitely another. not. There was a lot of studying there and stuff because, again, Prussia and the United States has had a long history of... of um of military uh, kind of collaboration where we had the American Blue Book, right, for the American Army, uh, the training manual that we had that was collected from Prussian ar- uh, officers. When was that? Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw this up. So somebody... Oh, like 19th century? I don't I think it was obviously... I th- or honest, uh, obviously, I think it was honestly in our... I think it was pre-1812. 
I think it was 1812 or the revolution, we had a Prussian blue book for our training corps for our army. Uh-huh. I think. I think it was then. It might have been later than that. I'm not really sure. Somebody can correct me. I don't care. Um, but I, I, it's somewhere around there. But we do have, have a collaboration between Prussian militarism and the U.S. Army uh, in the early days of, of, of you know, our, our country. So, or our empire, whatever you want to call it, considering that it is, you know, it's not really a republic. Yeah. So, let's see. So, some of the other things Wilson touches on as his... So, he's against the, the standard... Uh, or the, I guess, conventional narrative of of German militarism yep. in a weird way. Uh, in a kosher way. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, okay, I guess, yeah, say this guy's not uh, NS or anything. He's yep. a well-reviewed uh, court historian of, of the Zog regime. Yep. So, you know, uh, you're going to have to take your, your Holocaust illusions and stuff and just kind of <laughs> like filter that out when you read. But mm-hmm. uh, I think we're all used to that. Yeah. But he he mentions also uh, some other stuff like, uh, or I was going to say about the the conventional idea of German militarism. He doesn't say it in the introduction. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's not doing a direct call out here. But he it's in the footnotes. He's talking a lot about Chitano, uh, the German way of war, which oh, is yeah. a book I've talked about uh, on the show before. Which is pr- honestly probably a better book. Like if you want to read about the uh, sort of history of uh, the German militaries, I would read Chitano just because that is the more conventional narrative. And it's also just a tighter, like faster, better book. My problem with Wilson is he does this thing where he doesn't like to organize his books uh, <laughs> chronologically. He doesn't write yeah. it like a story. He writes thematically. Uh, this it works okay in this book, Iron and Blood, and it worked okay in the Thirty Years book, uh, Thirty Years War book, but it doesn't really work well in the Holy Roman in the Heart of Europe because he's like jumping around century to century. And like, that, well, in eighteen was very in hard fourteen eighty, this is what's happening, but in sixteen hundred, yeah, like, like it's just I can't. <laughs> it is hard. <laughs> it's you have to have all your ducks in a row. Like it, it is very autistic as as I'll get out. When yeah, it's, it's just it's just not good. Like it's it, be, it doesn't work as well. Yeah, you got to be a high. It's, this high is a, no. It's a it, this is like a modern academic fashion where it's like, mm-hmm. well, how else how else could we organize history? Would why should we be constrained by I mean, uh, you know, time and like organize it? <laughs> Constrained by time. Why? Why not just do it in like different ways? And eh. no, yeah, constrain yourself by time. It's easy. But this book is is more or less chronological. Now it does. If you're looking at the world in 1500, the German speaking world is what's now Switzerland, Austria, Germany, and really the Netherlands. Netherlands, Luxembourg, and a lot of pieces of what's now Eastern Europe. And yeah. we mentioned this in the Dutch episode, I think, but it's almost like if you're going to write a book about the German speaking countries and you're going to actually ground it in 1500, shouldn't the Dutch be part of that whole tradition too? Because especially of what of the status they held in 1500 before 1500, there was no, there wasn't really a standardized German language that really only developed militarily speaking Martin Luther. Well, yeah, not not even to cut you off, but militarily speaking, because that's like the big topic of the book is the military here, right? The military history and what connected these people and and how, how, and you're talking about writing a literary history, right? Yeah. Because like a literary history is easy to to connect from one group to the other, right? And the thing about the military, you can do the same thing. The Dutch also had a phenomenon with the Landsnecht uh, mercenary elements. Of course. They were doing the same 
ground military tactics that the rest of the German population. Well, it's it's why the English word Dutch, but I guess you, so you used Spanish, to refer to all these Italians. people. We just called them all Dutch. Yeah. And if you were from Vienna, you're fucking Dutch. Right. The Pennsylvania uh, Dutch are actually Pennsylvania yeah, Deutsch. Well, like, but they're Dutch because yeah. that's just our word for Deutsch. Right. <laughs> and but the reason that the Dutch get separated out is because of the Dutch uh, War of Independence. And then uh, they were, of course, under the Spanish. They broke away and then they formed right. their own country. And then they, they form their weird, like, pseudo literary language <laughs> that they like to. Yeah. Sorry, I won't. I won't shit on the Dutch anymore. That I'm going to. <laughs> So but yeah, it's, but it's it is sort of it's odd. A, it's it, a remnant. Uh, it's a remnant we were talking about uh, earlier of all the the unit because like, earlier they tried to, to unify the German languages into High German, and this is one that survived. Yeah, because like it would it, if history had played out differently, the Prussians would have standardized on a North German dialect that would have been closer to Dutch than to what we think of as German, because German yeah. is a Franconian tending towards South German yeah. dialect. And with all kinds of other weird things thrown in there. <laughs> so uh, I want to read just a, a couple of little bits from the introduction because this whole book is getting at this bigger idea. And I think it's it's interesting from a political perspective and a current events perspective why he wrote this book and why he wrote it the way he did. So in criticizing the sort of standard interpretation of German history, he says in the introduction, the preoccupation with the era of the two world wars has stunted debate about and frozen German military history within an anachronistic and teleological framework originating in, originating in the later 19th century and crystallizing in the aftermath of 1945. This approach projects a myth of a specifically German way of war, supposedly predetermined by that country's Jupiter. Uh, geopolitical situation in the heart of Europe, which left it surrounded by hostile neighbors. Germans, it is widely believed, were somehow naturally predisposed to, an, to aggressive wars from fear of encirclement and a desire to expand their living space. Okay, so in his, sorry, typically turgid academic prose, what he's saying is that historians write history assuming that it's all going to that 1945 will happen hitler will happen yeah, it's therefore the we have to look back on all of german history and find the the tells the uh omens of hitler coming about and in so doing we ignore all the other trends and we don't really get the correct picture because we're just looking for the things that foreshadow of course, hitler he says uncertainty the uncertainty of history like people back then had no idea what was going to happen in the future yeah and that's something it's actually it seems like a trite point but it's something that you always have to keep in mind when you're reading yeah, history it's like no am i idea. i'm just assuming that because i know what happens after that yeah. i don't if i'm reading about 1600 i have to assume that the 30 years war may or may not happen or you'd never even consider it you know yeah it could never even be might even not even be considerable or something on that scale would never be considerable. And that's kind of the thing is that, so he talks about how things are just, you have to take into consideration the uncertainty of history. All these people making all these decisions. It's not, and it's not a one trail from Arminius to Hitler. That doesn't work like that. Cause you know, like as far as like, Oh, well, as, as he was pointing out because of their geography, right. Being in the center of Europe, being not. Well, he's by criticizing that point. Well, no, as I'm saying, yeah. yeah so I'm agreeing with him on that. Is that he, uh, he, he makes this point is that, being that they're surrounded based on their geography by the Russian bear, by France, by the Italian states, papal states, whatnot, you know, at, at the time, um, well, a lot of us forget about this, but at the time, Sweden was a massive empire. 
Um, and they were a massive threat in the north, right? Uh, to Germany specifically, they had invaded multiple times. They had raided, you know, along the coast. They had, you know, to for Prussia, that was a that was a a, a threat. It honestly was. Um, so you had all these different situations at the time that would have made Germany have to develop these these kind of aggressive style uh, warfare tactics. The whole it needs to be quick though, and the whole the, the whole Blitzkrieg blah, crap. That's nonsense, though, because the the reason why they needed a quick war had nothing to do with decisive victories based on getting the better of their enemy. It was about economics. 100% was about economics. Funding wars back then was not this thing that we have today where there's somehow infinity money that, you know, Jews can just crank out uh, at a printing press in, the, in some country. It's not the same thing. Um, so back then, you actually had to fund wars with gold and resources and everything else like that. So the quicker the war, the cheaper the war was. Um, and a lot of times also, and this is the thing about, uh, this comes back to our Landsneck discussion slightly about uh, keeping standing militaries. Um a lot of them didn't have standing militaries back then. He goes over this in the book. A lot of these these principalities and these states, these German these German areas, didn't have standing militaries throughout the winter time. With the winter time, and, the, and war was seasonal. He talks about this too. War being seasonal as compared to being this this all encompassing thing where we think of today, where it's just year round. You know, hundred three sixty five. There's a constant war going on. We have a star standing military is is deployed or whatever. That didn't happen. A lot of times, it's like all right, winter time. Everybody go home, and we won't pay you. You know, and we'll we'll, we'll re recruit in this springtime you know and you know pay you guys again um or however however it went but the landsneck being you know mercenary forces would be paid to stand over wintertime and watches and things like that and so you had this this they started to build up this culture of having standing militaries throughout see you know throughout all seasons all the time 24 7 365 there was military presence in the german states for some reason one way or the other um and they had to be militarized again to protect themselves on all sides being in in the crossroads of europe and that was discussed in his other books uh with with heart of europe right being that they were again the heart of europe everything came through there: trade war uh pestilence everything was was right there in their crossroads so they had to develop this very militaristic defensive mentality and all the decisions over time would oh yeah it's inevitable but to an extent honestly it really honestly is inevitable because it's there's only a certain number of patterns that could be you know given at these certain right this is an outcome the blitzkrieg style warfare emerged because of geopolitical necessity you're not going to be able to if you are the, you're not going to be able to maintain your independence as a small German state uh, when all the states around you are getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, and they keep invading your territories, right. which is pretty much German history from like the Thirty Years' War or even earlier, the Wars of Religion, mm-hmm. uh, until they actually unified. Yeah, uh, uh, Wilson says some other stuff here. I mean, I. It's like I agree with his criticism, but I don't. He, right, he's yeah. <laughs> like he's like right, but he's wrong. Mm. So he says this in this in turn, so Germany's way of war, this in turn was supposedly fostered by a uniquely authoritarian form of politics because only state power could mobilize the resources necessary to develop and maintain the required first strike capacity. Operationally, German wars had to be Blitzkriege uh, to win quick and decisive victories before their enemies could combine their superior numbers against them. Well, I mean, yeah, duh. German armed forces allegedly strove for technical proficiency and technological superiority to gain a comparative advantage over their numerous foes. To achieve this, it is widely believed that the armed forces were entrusted to professionals operating uh, largely beyond political control, all with fatal consequences for German society and wider European peace. 
So, you know, now here's his his rejoinder. This interpretation has become almost unshakable orthodoxy, not least because German uh, military institutions like the general staff were widely emulated models before the 1870s. Right. Uh, German developments have been used as yardsticks to measure the performance and efficiency of other countries' armed forces. But that's only after those situations. Yeah. There. Prior to 1870, I think he mentions as well, there was no there was no wide conception that the Germans were this military powerhouse there was certain, right no certain uh, circles, the, Ger- yes. the germans were like kind of like oh yeah those people they were like the italians before you know everyone laughed about it about the germans before like well certainly 1870 with certain regards like the military like they had certain respect for certain people in it in the history obviously and they had you know scientific advancements throughout towards the but germany really came into itself in the late 1800s with its scientific advances its anthropological advances military advances all these types of things um even political uh the way its its structures were organized and everything else like that uh germany germany really didn't honestly say it's it's sad that it's such a short-lived country um and i hate to say that because it's right now it's not fully what it is supposed to be germany's a vassal state of america it's not like beat to death every every european country is a vassal state of america and that's that's a bad thing it is you know it's (laughs) germany specifically america's a vassal state of israel so (laughs) no no uh no trade no shade thrown europeans yeah so poor europe or before germany specifically though is all carved up and beaten to death right now um and it only got like basically germany only got to live from 1870 to 1945 that's Germany, um, as 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 it is known as a as a nation state, and really, honestly, only from like nineteen thirty eight till nineteen forty five, where you have the unification yeah. fully. His, of it. his criticism makes sense too, looking at like Austrian history, right? Because we think of Austria, Austria, we hear about, oh well, you know, the Habsburgs were decadent and incompetent. Uh, chief of the general, chief of the uh, Austrian general staff. Yeah, but they uh, had to work their way up to that type of decadence. Well, hold on, uh, oh, <laughs> who's the chief of the? Austrian general staff, uh, Conrad Hutzendorf uh, oh. or something. He was like a notorious degenerate. Do you know about this guy at all? He was getting in. He was like a. <sighs> a notorious degenerate? Yes. Like, like he was obsessed with the idea of decline and decadence. He was the guy who was supposed to be planning like Austria's military plans before world war one and, and was running the general staff during the initial stages of world war one. Oh god i can't remember the details but there was this scandal that he was involved in, it was several scandals that he was involved mm. in he was like wife swapping with somebody <laughs> and sounds like the u.s military oh my, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it was like the u.s military but way way more so that's a hard one to beat yeah <laughs> um it must be severe Hutzendorf. yeah no he was weird but Oh no! The, and some the somebody had blackmail on him too mm. because he was, and that's what it was. There was a there was an industrialist, possibly a Jew, not sure. Go, yeah, who who Hussendorf, chief of the staff, was banging this guy's wife. <laughs> but it wasn't like, but the dude, the the cuck, was like controlling hootsendorf because that was like black a blackmailable offense back then he was like pimping out his wife to the chief of the general staff in order to blackmail him haven't we seen this before in like ancient history i'm i'm sure i mean, what do you, I mean pick a time i suppose i don't want to name any name mark milley uh, <laughs> i mean i don't know that that's what's going on but like i'm gonna right, right. i'm gonna hypothesize right right <laughs> these hot like so it just this is a, a tactic a political tactic so. yeah anyway this yeah. is like this is what you think of when you think of the Austrian military. 
and you think of, of, of 1914, right? You think they're, they speak 14 different freaking languages. Uh, the uh, Hungarians don't want to be there. The Czechs don't want to be there. Nobody else wants to be there. Uh, Vienna, for some reason, wants to get in a war. And I mean, for actually a very good reason. Uh, and they just like get their shit pushed in by everybody, even the Serbs, which is unbelievable, unbelievable. But the Austrians weren't always that shitty. Yeah. The Austrians of 18 or sorry, 1680, uh, defeating the Turks, 83 at Vienna. And then all the wars, the the uh, Great Turkish War of 83 to 99, where they like smash the Turks all the way back to Belgrade. Uh, Eugene of Savoy, their great commander, like the Austrians were the top dog in Europe for about 100 years. I mean, ar- arguably with the French, I'd too. Say a little more than that. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Like 18, about so 200 years. 1680, they really came into their own until like Napoleon. And even yeah. in Napoleon's time, like Napoleon, Napoleon you know, he beat the really Austrians, but he knew, he knew the Austrians were like a big deal. Right. But and he, you, it was hard to beat them. Napoleon was a massive historical shift in European politics and dynamics. Like the power, like the power, the shift of power or the dynamics of power. They kept trying to bring it back afterwards, obviously, with Churchill and all other bullshit and just ended up killing everybody. Um, but... I think Napoleon is one to really look at. And that is mentioned again, obviously in this book as well as just being a, because it, it, sh- it changed everybody's military tactics, changed how they looked at things geopolitically and everything economically too. It changed everything. Um, because what's strange, you know, what's strange though about Napoleon, this is kind of getting off on a small tangent. What's weird about Napoleon is that it's such a massive occurrence in European history, but it's not the first occurrence of its kind and occurrences like it, previously in history didn't seem to have as much of a universal shakeup as napoleon did in europe unless maybe they did and we're just not analyzing it correctly so like napoleon versus what the reformation something like that yeah like some giant giant war that encompasses most of europe or not necessarily that like you have um i think this is just a perspective problem like it's Mm -hmm. uh, everybody now thinks that World War II is like the most important thing ever. And right. in a way it is, in, in a different way it is. But the events of yeah, the Napoleonic Wars or the Reformation or the Thirty Years' War or the Crusades, like all these things were just as big as an import, as and as important when they happened. Right. Yeah. And have way more effect on the modern day than people usually give them credit for. That's fair. Because obviously, well, I guess, I guess France was just the center of the world at the time, with their happenings, as far as making no, changes. Fr- yeah, know. with the revolution and stuff. Yeah, I feel like it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been that big of a deal if it was just the United States that went the way of republicanism, just because we were a colony, and so Europe would not have just focused on it. I feel like they would have just not cared if if France had never gone off. Oh, if there'd never been a French Revolution. Yeah. I mean, I mean, eventually they would have changed, I think, because there was obviously those revolutions that eventually boiled up over time. But I feel like it would have been a different type of change into populist. I mean, we sort of forget you know, that there was a uh, there was an English revolution and an English republic. There were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly before the French Revolution. Right. But that was different, right? I mean, we can consider that different, I would imagine. It wasn't... I, well, because England's been revolting ever since the Magna Carta. <laughs> like... They just been in constant conflict. They've always been jur- like their their monarchy has been consistently ceding 
uh, power to a populist style government. Well, for I, hundreds I think of years. I think I think in the British in in to the British's credit, they successfully negotiated what was a necessary political change from a sort of absolute monarchy into a a balanced monarchy between the nobility uh, and the king but see and now i don't disagree with that but i think it only has context with england in and of itself because england england's racial composition between the england's and the saxons was needed to be balanced out with that type of england power. succeeded in in slowly evolving france didn't slowly evolve and then like typical french they had this outrageous outburst right of something like, french or blood orgies <laughs> You know, and everyone in Europe was like shocked at, oh my God, uh, uh. but you know, like it happens. I suppose, I'm, yeah, it's like because you had you had gradual changes in different areas, like throughout. And this again, this is all part of 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 the topic at hand too, with with the changing of times, specifically Frederick the Great as well, where you had this this changing of of things from feudalism into like an enlightened absolutist or an enlightened monarchical type of systems uh or even you know adjacent republican systems or constitutional monarchies in the case of england um you had these changes that were happening over time uh but at the same time they they didn't really the pro uh, having to look the what i'm trying to look at say is, is that people look at those types of um governmental changes as being kind of in a vacuum and they usually look at only england especially when we're talking about uh the united states here and the way we, we right were, yeah we're this is, this is a, a typical um, problem is right like the, the anglosphere so we think of we think of monarchy basically as being um of of that like we, king we, george yeah king george or we we had to do this magna carta thing or like monarchy has to be checked uh simply because uh that's the way they did it in england they had to have this you know this constitutional monarchy well they had to because again they had these two different groups fighting for power within the same system and they needed to check one and balance the other um it, and you didn't have the same evolution of of the degradation of of monarchical rule in the rest of europe it was totally different and that affected the militarism of those of those nations so like in england right you had this like concept even long before the french revolution you had a people's military right um some like there was volunteers here and there you had some kind of you know standing armies this that or the other the king could rally troops there was like a, it was more involved than just your basic um okay your basic feudal system okay of, of you own this land and you're responsible for these people and you're responsible for giving me x number of men for x so war. you're just talking about centralization like right they, yeah they they came up with a process they implemented the process and it worked well i don't necessarily i mean it was more complicated i would say as compared to the direct control methods that you'd see that developed oh, yeah. out well, of that's, central europe that's the german way yes yeah. like yeah, fuck your stupid uh well right oh, yeah my, my ancient rights blah 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 well the german way up until 1870 right, was right. that like well you're you're your own state and we'll call up the Wurttembergers to assist us in our war with Austria. They still had remnants of that in World War One, yeah. even discussing this, you know, because you saw like they had different uniforms for the different regiments from the different states and shit like that. So they it still persisted. Yes, our Fuhrer was in the Bavarian army, technically. Yeah, yeah he had, was not in the German army; he was in the Bavarian army, <laughs> and they had different colors and everything else like that for everything. And so you still had that 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 development that was, but that was that that type of of thing developed and you could see it in, again in the german methods of, de of warfare development so from that continental perspective uh of, of having um 
you know, different individual militaries and everything else like that. Because the French weren't really that different. The French, the French had a standing unified military only because the French had experienced colonialism. No, no, the no. The French had a standing military or, because they unified first. Well, you mean like in the actual, the actual conflict? I mean, like, oh, you as, mean in World War One? Yeah, yeah. Training as far, oh, as, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, 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 not, 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 not that. I mean, they had more experience with with keeping a a consistent military force all the time as compared to the German militaries at the time that only mobilized individual units or individual groups or however upon necessity, right? Like they didn't have to. Like they had some foreign legions when they had they because again germany wasn't really involving itself in colonialism until 1870 um you had like what some stuff in southwest africa and look i played battlefield okay there's black dudes in it i don't know (laughs) what you're talking about here you get you get the cavalry dude you're a black guy like clearly all the snipers are black in the german (laughs) army somehow every single marksman in the german military i saw an article once about this um (laughs) this is probably five years ago talking about like Call, battle, I was playing Battlefield last night. It's pretty right. sweet. Uh, if you see a guy running around like just trying to bayonet people, and you're playing Battlefield, it's probably me. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta have fun with it. <laughs> Into the trench. Uh, yeah, it. There was an article basically about how. Uh, I mean, it, it, the the game is realistic in that like the British have like a Sikh dude as your medic, and <laughs> the French have like black dudes. It's like yeah, that that is real. I mean, you read about that in World War One memoirs. Yeah, um, there just weren't any black dudes fighting for the Germans. Yeah, there were like there were like three in the entire German military. And they, they have it. So they, it's like they dug through 50%. this. So the article was talking about this. They du- they like dug through and looked for black dudes from the colonies who ended up in the German military, and there were like three they could identify. And one was like in a cer- in like a ceremonial unit. Go figure. Right. Oh yeah. You pray. Yeah, we have a yeah, we have a diversity here. Yeah. <laughs> look at our look at our cool uh, colonial uh, soldier here. But yeah. yeah, no, the German military was <clears throat> pretty much exclusively white. I mean, not they pre- did have hundred percent white. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm under I'm vastly under. Unless you're attack talking hundred like, percent thoroughly white. Like unless you're including like balkan recruits but like <laughs> yeah let's not, let's not be cruel but uh or if you're looking at the african uh you know leto vorbeek and the uh, well, colonial it, wars but those were that's Asteri. if you're in africa yeah. you should expect your troops to be african <laughs> like it just makes sense and your horses your horses will be zebras <laughs> see i'm so pissed that it never took off like could you imagine a world we had like zebra cavalry and like zeppelin the, the you know, italians zeppelins did it the italians uh domesticated zebras despite what J- jared diamond will tell you that uh <laughs> domesticating zebras is impossible which is why africa never developed yeah anyway that's, that's bullshit uh, yeah <laughs> yeah but you know that would just be great with pith helmets and zebras and zeppelins and yeah things. yeah we're, we're just bullshitting now but well right but yeah <laughs> well honestly are we though because how close to that was the uh the the german militarism of the of east africa because like okay getting off on a, this is a strange tangent so that let's actually not fall into the trap that everybody else falls into and just talk about world war ii when it comes to german militarism everybody else does it so there's, there's other stuff in this cool book that we that we can get into is german colonialism for military sake and, and how that it, how that actually came into play with the bigger wars back in Europe and the tactics that were developed as far as uh you know kind of long range kind of conflicts and and uh okay, squad right, tactics the and Germans whatnot had uh what's now Namibia yeah Tanzania so Namibia currently today Cameroon, the Cameroons the, the Cameroons right yeah there was a few so like Southwest Africa 
Uh, German South Africa, South Southwest Africa consistently Tanzania. Whatever. That's Namibia. Namibia Southwest Africa. No, I know. I oh, know. oh, sorry. Yeah, I said Tanzania. It's Tan Tanzania. It is. Yeah. No, I don't know. I'm. Are you thinking, dyslexic, of, I think of Tasmania? Yeah. Who knows? Oh yeah, some other random <laughs> place with pygmies <laughs> and crazy some other animals. Black place, yes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, scholarly ignorance is the best. <laughs> So yeah, okay. So South German South Southwest Africa was uh, consisted basically of what is now Namibia today, um, which is a ridiculously resource rich country that is. Extremely I thought it was a desert hellhole. Yeah, you'd think that they want you to think that it's like sparsely populated, sure. And there was like, uh, we had our German genocide in the early like 1905, where you rounded up all yeah, of our right, people, right, blah, right. whatever, and sent them into the desert to die. And it's just like, well, if you just they had their being partisans, yeah. you know, so. But yeah, so apparently also there are still German communities in Namibia today, currently. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, and which is I thought was interesting. So, but also as German South or German East Africa, which consists of Kenya and Tanzania. Um, no, it wasn't Kenya. Yeah, Kenza, Kenya. No, was, Kenya was British. Was it always British? Yeah, it was always I thought Brit- the Brits got it from it Germany. Was Britpong. Uh, maybe maybe some deep esoterica here. I don't uh, know. I thought that was Kenya the case. was British in World War One. In World War One. Yeah. Oh, because I always thought that there was. I thought they no. They the the Britpongs needed to get Tanzania in order to build the Cecil Rhodes Cairo to Cape railway. Oh, that's right. They couldn't do it because the Germans had Tanzania and a couple other. I think items on the coast, didn't they? I know. Well, yeah, but that was the the but thing Tanzania that was that the, was the thing one. that that interrupted the line of British colonies the going across the what they were going to build the, they were going to build it to Dar es Salaam for the port no no they're going to build it to the Cape Town what's I'm saying Africa. like through but they would I would imagine if they wanted Tanzania they were going to build it through Dar es Salaam on the port oh yeah I yeah and then so. go down south from that because you had all the port from um or all the all the traffic from um uh what's that Zanzibar that fun little island that everybody talks about yeah on the islands there so okay well one way or the other though so you had that Tanzania right it's a big one because they still speak German there currently surprisingly so the Germans did like guerrilla war there yeah is what you, well, you were getting at i think it's not no well more so squad tactics they had they had to, they had to rely um due to low resources right like obviously manpower and weapons and supplies and everything else like that they had to rely on um more concise like small unit tactics mm-hmm. where you would have to have like you know a couple of riflemen like a long range you know like your heavy kind of things and you'd compact that into these you scout so units you had to like non-retarded ncos basically yeah you had you had to to figure out how to develop your your base squad units now obviously it was wasn't perfect yet we're talking about the late 1800s and whatnot where people were still dying of dumb stuff like flies and mosquitoes and snakes um more so than they were of getting in combat so you still had the development of this but you had um you had all kinds of military development uh tactically so in namibia specifically or german southwest africa you had the germans developing um that this is not something new this has been something that's been around for probably thousands of years regarding the bedouins and whatnot is camelry right like camel cavalry yeah yeah i talked about this in the last episode with uh my my lecture on an islam oh right yeah on uh <laughs> Khalid ibn al-Walid and uh, mm-hmm. Omar ibn al-As. Right. So, um, so the Germans were utilizing these these native tactics, and that, which wasn't uncommon for colonial troops to adopt native tactics. Obviously, it made the most sense to do so. Um, yeah, you're in a desert, use camel stuff. Right. You know, we're in India, right? The British troops would pick up whatever strange, uh, 
cookery weapons and strange things from the, the native Indians. Um, but so the, the Germans have developed all these different tactics and whatnot uh, through their... their but did that have an effect in Europe? I mean, I thought... Yeah, the, for sure. I thought the Germans developed this sort of uh, Auftrags tactic, the mission tactics that, like, the U.S. Army still, like, supposedly uses yeah. uh, from mainly the Eastern Front, like, in World War One. Like, I mean, obviously it had a long evolution, but, like, oh, God, fuck. During the siege of Riga... There was a uh, German general office, officer, forget his name, who like really had integrated uh, use of artillery, and uh, he like developed the idea of how they were, and and they they implemented his tactics during. Oh, Operation that's combined Michael. arms, combined, combined arms. Well, combined arms, but also like devolving authority to your sergeants and your lieutenants. Oh, right. That was well. They had they that was they had already dev- done some of that that element before then is the devolving downward well of course yeah because um, that'd been an evolution but the, Ger- the, German- the germans in world war one like this this is like their the thing that they're most praised for yeah in both like like conventional books uh, like uh german way of war and i mean in this book too is like yeah the germans did develop that more structured but loose it's like you you have the general you have the top officers but they don't are not micromanaging they, right they there is the lieutenant and the captains and the colonels all have their own like spheres of power and like you're expected to execute based on the overall conception right and so commanders th- intent that that was part of the german way of combat for a while at that point too as, as i'm sure you note um but what i was specifically saying was just basically your um your refinement of squad squad weaponry assortments basically it's not combined arms obviously in, in the in tanzania they weren't using artillery right. against the natives and whatnot they were just sending out patrols you mean sending putting like a, a machine gun in every platoon or something basically that kind of tactic yeah where you would have you'd have a heavy weapon you'd have your you know light weapons Because if you read about these else. older wars like you read about like a machine gun company and you're like yeah, what yeah. the fuck is that like yeah. <laughs> how, how does that work it's the whole bit of them and they're all there to support the one gun <laughs> like so is they had a lot of you know interesting tactics that they were developing back then but you know still even in the um i think that the attrition uh the problem is, though, I think that they, they screwed up a bit is they didn't cycle out their colonial troops, their white colonial troops. And this, this went for both ways. Their officers. Or, or did they have enlisted, too? Both. They had both. Uh-huh. Um, I would say I say this is a problem for all the major powers of Europe at the time, is that they didn't cycle out enough of their colonial white troops into their European troops um, to supplement the, the well, constant... I mean, for Germany, that was probably impossible. At the time, it, I would say, yeah. But I mean, even for France and, 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 and Britain, um, I'm surprised they didn't do this more, where those units are used to harsh, like, foreign conditions... Uh, and attrition and those types of battles and whatnot and they would i think they would have done a heck of a lot better in like yeah, places like, you're, like you're the qu- trenches it does sort of make sense to cross pollinate like get your your european troops into the colonies and colonial troops back and yeah but yeah. they only did it with with the non-whites basically like they would bring in like especially the brits and the, the you know senegalese the and stuff yeah. yeah they just bring in you know <laughs> dare i say it you know like just nig regiments and just <laughs> unleash them across you, you ever read uh, all quiet in the western front yeah Remember the part where Paul is complaining about the uh, the black French or the black American troops? Now he can't see him at night. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was the French, it's wasn't like it? So yeah. fucking racist. But it's true though. But I mean, it's just like so obviously true. Yeah. Like <laughs> it is. It's like 
it's good camo, I suppose, you know, it really honestly is. So, but so yeah, so that, that, that type of melding at the time of, of Germany's growing influence at the end of the 1900 or the end of the 19, uh, 19th century, um, and their, their experience overseas. Now, obviously their experience and their influence and power and resource acquisition and stuff overseas had not been solidified for as long as your other powers, right? Um, as, as England and France and whatnot, you know, for as long as they've had their empires and their colonies and their, their, basically their, their logistical supply lines have been solidified for hundreds of years as compared to Germany's, which had only been up for 20 yeah, I mean, the German Navy wasn't going to beat the British Navy no. and the French Navy combined. So. Right, and they didn't have that repertoire with native uh, populations either in order to maintain these types of supply lines either. I mean, it was the Wild West style of... of they, they entered they entered into colonialism at the Wild West era of colonialism where basically anything went for money and bullets. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it just was, kills me. It, it just fucking kills me when the French and the British... Uh, and the Russians and the Americans like cry about German and Italian colonialism. It's, it's like shut, shut the fuck up. You have up. no right. Shut the fuck <laughs> <up>. No right. <laughs> like yeah, it's like, German colonialism is a brief joke, and the fact that people are still crying about it, like Namibia is currently like, uh, my genocide, give us money, and they're just trying to milk the Germans out of it. It's like, dude, you were most most of what happened to, to Namibia and colonial its colonial past, like it was owned by England more. Like it was owned by England longer than it was by Germany, and they're bitching to the Germans because the Germans did one march into the desert because some partisans decided to shoot some civilians or something. Yeah, like uh, like shut the fuck up. And they've already been paid for it. They just want more money, and they keep beating it out of people. I think Tanzania doesn't fuck with Germany too much, although they probably do. Who knows? They probably ever take swings at that poor country now. Oh, well, good that you bring that up because like seeing this book. And, and, you know, I, I didn't read the whole fucking thing. It's 900 pages. I like kind of <laughs> skimmed around. But what's what struck me about it is like, given the current political situation, mm. this book is is like fucking perfect. Because I think we're as far in a as mode. propaganda is concerned? Yeah, we're in a mode where, or Zog, NATO is in a mode where it's going from Germany bad, we have to be against the Wehrmacht and we have to like say all Wehrmacht soldiers did war crimes and therefore Holocaust to a mode sort of back where we were in like the Cold War where it's like yeah Germany were the bad guys but we're gonna we're gonna respect German military prowess in the same way that like America did this did that with the South too after the Civil War like yeah. back in the 1890s and uh, you know early 20th century it was very much like well the South were the enemy in the Civil War but like we've gotten back together and like you know Robert E Lee and Jeb Stuart and Stonewall Jackson are all like amazing heroes and like they you know they fought for their country and you know it was tragic that we had that war but like in the end. Uh, we got back together and we're all Americans now and we can be proud of our military heritage in the same way this book is kind of doing that for the Germans it's really weird mm. because that was not I remember five years ago yeah, you what, remember five years ago we would, remember five years this ago would not have happened. Zog does not remember or Zog pretends not to remember yeah. five years ago so five years ago they weren't talking about the German military the way this book is they never would have published this I don't think he would have written this book five years ago no this book would have never been published five years ago. This would have been he. They would have strung him up if he wrote this. That would have been some, the end of some his interesting career. pictures in the plates you were just showing me. Mm -hmm. um, very interestingly chosen. 
So yeah, f- the- one one was a uh, picture of Sikh soldiers in the German army in, in the Wehrmacht. Yeah. Which, you know, we know. They're the Indian Ver- foreign language. Everybody knows. Everybody, if you watch uh, Mark Felton mm-hmm. on YouTube, he's a good... Uh, and this is in Europe, by the way. This uh, is not in there's, India. There's videos on this. You can. Uh, this is accepted conventional narrative. Everybody knows this. The German army had whole battalions, even divisions of Sikhs, Arabs, Central Asians. Foreign legions, yeah. Cap- the, the Allies captured like a few dozen Koreans at uh, D-Day. There's a movie about that. There is a movie. Yeah, there is a movie There's about a whole this. movie about that. It's actually a phenomenal movie called and My like, Way. It I, is a pretty good movie. And it's, it's a, also it's also true. It is true. It's about and the Japanese ca- The Allies the captured yeah. these guys and they're like, wait a second, there's some Japs here. Well, the, uh, the Japanese guy wanted the Korean... The, or the, no, 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 wait. Or, let me tell it. Yeah, so, like, they're, the Allies are like, there's some Japs here yeah. and what the fuck are these Japs doing wearing, like, Stahlhelms? And they're like, wait a second, they're Koreans. What the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> we thought you were all racist and stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, it's, it just didn't happen the way they wanted it to. And, like, in the movie, the, the true story or whatever, it's like... There was a Jap and a, and a Korean, and the Jap, um, or the, the Jap was going to survive. I believe it's Jap and Gook. I think are oh, sorry, like racial you, colloquialism. We can universally we call them all. We respect the Japs and we respect the the Gooks. We do, and yes. so we can just universally call them slants. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so there's there's a pair of these slants, right? So one's Jap and one's Korean, uh, and in in the in the film, and they're on D Day, and so uh, the bombs start dropping, the whole thing goes off, whatever, and um, the Korean guy gets uh, wounded, whatever, like mortally. wounded wounded um and he knows that the americans are going to be aggressive uh you know lunatics when they find the japanese guy because d-day had already happened right and so the, he gives or, uh pearl harbor yeah pearl harbor sorry not d-day d-day Whatever. was happening they were, they were both fake they were at yeah they were at d-day sorry <laughs> uh so he they um the japanese guy or the korean guy gives his dog tags to the japanese guy um and says pretend that you're me and then he goes on to like, i don't remember that i saw that movie years yeah. ago it, what I, I'm going to get back to my original point, but oh, right, what right. was cool about that movie is they show the what it's like, or I mean, what we can only imagine it's like to get uh, fucking hit by naval guns. Could like, you, you watch, imagine? You watch, you watch Saving Private Ryan, and it's like, oh, these fucking Germans are just chilling up on the beach, and now they're machine gunning us. Fucking Jew. Fuck yeah, you, no. Steven Spielberg, you disgusting fucking kike. Yep. No. Like, you see the Germans, it's like, oh, so they just got shat on by like, they got bombed. They got hit by naval guns. They got torn apart, and then they're getting assaulted. And yeah, like you know, that was not an easy. It's invasion. not like oh, just oh, they're just chilling on the, on the fucking beach, and then like we machine gun them when they try to surrender. Fuck no, you. that's Fuck you. not Fuck what you happened. You. Like, Fuck you. Um, that's why yeah, it was that, so brutal. That, that movie was great because it showed that it's like yeah, this was shitty for yeah. everybody. My way was really the, honestly probably one of the best World War II films ever. Um, that shows a, a very interesting. Di- honestly, I'm going to say this uh, in in a in a proper way, a very diversified uh, cluster of viewpoints. Yes, uh, from World War II because it, it shows the, the it shows Stalingrad too a little bit uh, in the Russian side. But that that the fact that the, those those plates were included yeah. in this book is like. That's very interesting that you're bringing this up now because it's it's juxtaposed on the same page. There's a picture, a famous picture of a Russian soldier taking a bicycle, trying to take a bicycle from a a Berlin civilian. Yeah. A woman. uh, Yeah. After a woman from a woman in 1945 in occupied Berlin. Yeah. And so it's like 
one, it's suggesting, well, the Germans aren't like evil psycho uh, racists. And there's this there's other currents here in their history. It definitely paints the Russians as kind of bad. But yes, <laughs> then it also not so subtly hints that the Russians are evil. Right. <laughs> which I don't agree with. Right. Or but, you know, I, I, I think I have a nuanced view on the Russians. Right. You right. Know, they're they're not Western European. They're not part of our civilization, but yeah. they're not like they should be they, dehumanized they, they, as well. When, when Germany's stock is going up, Russia's stock is going down and vice versa. <laughs> this is like a <laughs> you can pretty much whoever is more hated is. Yeah, it's it's uh, inversely proportional. Yeah. It's true. Well, I mean, there's also that, but there's also the historical elements to it too. Like I'm, I'm pers- I have, I have my own gripes with the with the Russians, but it's uh, they, the way they paint that though, and I, I don't like that they paint it that way because it's it's blatantly war propaganda for the time. Clearly, of who for we're now, going, yeah, like what are we going up against with this NATO bullshit and this whole anti-Russia? Yeah, thing? now it's like, oh, hey, yeah. Germans, remember how the Russians like uh, were really shitty to you? Yeah. Now you should support my Ukraine. Which is so stupid. It's just like you guys should. They, it's uh, that that war should have not gone the way it did. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. But but yeah. So uh, but no. So the book does cover. Uh, well, it actually so five hundred years of German history, and not just <laughs> not just five. But what's uh, interesting too is to kind of compare. So he talks about the Blitzkrieg thing, right? And yeah. The, the notion of Germany doing Blitzkrieg in the Ukraine war. Russia seemed to try to do that like the initial invasion i think what happened is my (laughs) hypothesis is the russians were sitting around in the russian general staff like smoking cigarettes listening to yuba right and uh they got a call from vladimir vladimirovich putin president of all russia (laughs) and he said yo we're invading ukraine get your shit together and they're like fuck (laughs) and then they're like hey uh sergey go check out the files and they like went into the filing cabinet and they pulled out, okay, we have a contingency plan on this. Yes. Uh, good. You know, marked like 1948. <laughs> 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 Signed by uh, Marshal Konyev, Marshal Zhukov. Right. Like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we got a plan here. It's got to be plan's good. plan's pretty fucking good. Oh, this is, wow. I, I would have never thought of this. Yeah. Uh, let's do this. This is and they, like, out. <laughs> they attempted to implement it. And like the plan... The plan, I think, was fucking genius. Yeah. Like, this plan was written... That's why I think it, this was done, because I think the plan was written by people who knew the fuck what they were doing. In a totally they different didn't time. Have, the Russians don't have an army that's, like, maintained itself to that standard. Uh, right. They didn't have, like, institutional knowledge about logistics and command and control in order to properly carry it out. I mean, it was an ambitious plan. It's, it's It was clearly a gambit going for Kiev, or Kiev, as Kiev, we call it. Kiev, Kiev. Uh, and it didn't work and now they're like okay just defaulting to like standard russian um tactics of like yo big guns and uh <laughs> let's just see what you know we'll just do big guns maybe torture some people katushka rockets all day and uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> bomb civilians torture people win the <laughs> win the war but yeah rape and pillage when, when in doubt default to mongol <laughs> like yeah but, uh, i'm with that being said though that's but but on the other hand, like going back to the sort of NATO thing, like oh, you can right. see, like like a scholar, like a scholar like Wilson writes a book. I mean, he writes a book 
mainly because he's interested in it and because he knows about it and he thinks that the book needs to be written. And he's looking at the historical literature on like German military. And he's like, you know, I think there's some things that I could say here that are different. And he's got a lot of things to say that are different. And he does. You know, it is good to point out. Yeah. Like the historical literature has driven at finding points in the past that lead one to conclude that 1945 was inevitable. Right. And I want to write a book that shows that 1945 wasn't inevitable. I'm going to find all the stuff that doesn't. But it's convenient that this does align with the sort of current political ethos that we need to rally NATO to fight against the Ruskies. Right, 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 right. And in order to do so, well, you know, you can have you have the Americans. The Americans and the Brit Bongs are always down. Yeah. The French, <laughs> the French, you know, if you can give the them, French. if you can give them a reason for their narcissism, they can do it. They'll be like, okay, we oui, we oui, monsieur. Yeah, like uh, we'll do it. You get uh, free one. <laughs> the Germans, the Germans are problematic because the Germans, the Germans like, used to be on board with this until we beat the trash out of them in 1945. Right, because like the Germans are the whipping boy of the the Jewish like plutocratic establishment. Right. But then it's like, okay, but yeah, you're good at fighting people, so oh, fuck. Yeah, like you're the best at. So well, they yeah, were the, we're they gonna, were the ones who kept Russia at bay for so long, and that's in the book. It talks about that too. Is like, why was Germany always having to be like on on edge with war because they were the the frontier of Europe in the east. You know, that's why it became so, yeah, why, genocidal. Why, I mean, this is a universal of history, but why do countries get good at war and why do they get good at politics? Well, it's usually because they their survival depends on it, right? <laughs> Duh. It's it's a learned evolutionary behavior for whatever organism, and that happens to be the state at this point. So, but that's kind of the issue is that they we we've not we I, I say we when I mean we I mean the colloquial West, right? You yeah, know, let's like, I, I I you gotta be careful. I think everyone should be yeah. careful. Whenever we say we, I mean Nazis. Whenever I oh, say. Yeah. Zog, I mean Zog. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm, I don't. I I'm, no longer say we went to the moon. Zog went to the well. Nazis went to the moon. Yeah, fair. We did not invade Iraq. Zog invaded Iraq. That's true. Yeah. So uh, we neutered or thing. I did the we thing again. Zog neutered their only real established historical defense against Russia. Yeah. From in the European sense of things, which was Germany. Right. And now they're trying to build up like these eastern countries like Poland and the Baltics. Yeah. To do the plate or to to kind of be that like be what germ what germany historically was defending uh the west against yeah the hungarians uh right you know, battle of lechfeld people don't remember <laughs> in 955 these hungarians were like these hungarians these hungarians were invading everybody and raining terror on europe for 50 years and uh the germans stopped them at lechfeld be down uh you know stuff like that yeah and then they went on that's your frontier country build so nice that, things in transylvania <laughs> yeah that's your frontier country but now uh germany is no longer the frontier but right. they still need the germans a little bit they don't really need german troops um yeah, but they, they do need the sort of acquiescence of the german the population and the industry and they need the industry yeah the industry money big. yeah because the industry because they might be able to puppet the balkan states and the Slavs against the other Slavs, right? And they could do the whole bit they're trying to pull now with Ukraine, Poland, Muslava, Ukraine, and then somehow they're going to try to rope the Baltic states in there like they're Slavic or something. Um, and, you know, they're they're trying to... Oh, yeah, they're the, Balts, have, the Balts aren't going to put up with that. The Balts are, we are Baltic, and Lithuanian right. is not a Slavic language. Right. Latvian. They're also, they're, they've already shot themselves in the foot by allowing Russia to have what's left of East Prussia. 
because that physically, oh, yeah, that geographically, was... there's no way to do anything about that, that without going direct war. Because they would have to invade Russian land, Russian sovereign territory if they mm-hmm. invaded that ever. It's not like taking over a satellite state. And so, again, when we're talking yeah, about the breakup of Kalin- Germany. Kaliningrad yeah. Oblast. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, that's what it's called now. Kaliningrad, not Königsberg like it's supposed to be. Uh, East Prussia, Königsberg. Um, all of that's so dismembered at this point that there's no, and it's so integrated that you've, they've, they've made a quagmire out of that entire zone, unfortunately, to the point where even if they decided to, to do what this book is probably geared towards doing, which is remobilizing some form of German, uh, I don't know, desire or patriotism towards a, a Western hegemony against yeah, it, Russia I mean, or whatever. Like I was saying earlier, it's, it's exactly what enough. Zog did with the South, where it's like, all right, you boys fought hard. We like you. Here's why, why don't you go fucking fight for us? Here's yeah. a statue. Um, go die in Europe for like our financial interests. Right. That's basically what we're doing again here. Or what they're doing again here. There's a sort of, uh, speaking of the Eastern countries, there's a sort of gay op that <laughs> I've heard mm-hmm. various places. I've, I've been pitched it directly. That, the, that dissidents in the West... Uh, broadly speaking, I don't like to use that word, word Nazis, but right. Nazis and pseudo-Nazis <laughs> ought to support this idea of uh, intermarium, which intermarium is the idea. So inter is Latin for between and right. marium is, it's, fuck, it's not Latin for C. Oh, I guess, I guess it's yeah. maybe a genitive plural. I don't know. Like, I guess it's the genitive plural of mare which yeah that's what it is it's a genitive plural there we go oh yeah so between between the c's right but inter doesn't take the genitive what the i don't know whatever it's (laughs) it's retarded uh so between the c's so between the baltic and the black sea oh Uh, right right. so what are the countries between the baltic and the black sea well the baltic state you know latvia lithuania estonia poland poland ukraine ukraine belarus and then pitch in there like the georgians the caucasian states and then maybe throw in iran too what or well you know a, an Aryan Iran or pitch in the, Azerbaijan uh, yeah <laughs> um and so the idea is basically like we need to take these countries and build them up as that is where the way this is pitched to Nazis is like well these states are they are white countries and they are oppressed by Russian uh, aggression and Russian imperialism. And we need to build them up. And that's where like a future sort of white. Uh, it's the, sort of the it's like a, it's sort of the same idea as as a white secessionism, but it's like a white secessionism in Eastern Europe. The fuck? And yeah, I, I don't I don't. I don't get it. I mean, I see from Zog's point of view, you want your nazis to support i mean it's it's like Azov battalion right you right. want your nazis to support what what use do you have for nazis they're always causing problems they're going around being like these jews and these plutocrats need to be stopped and trannies are bad and the economics in america are completely insane and they only support the super wealthy all the normal points that normal people like are like yeah duh right duh right. i agree with that i like these nazis they're right and so just kind of taking that energy and being like, OK, well, you guys, why don't you just go like die in a ditch in Eastern Europe? <laughs> right. Because Russia is the problem. It's like, no, fuck you. Jews are the problem. Right. Like, I'm not going to be distracted by these Ruskies. You know, sure, the Russians are 
civilizational rival and yeah they're and, yeah they, they're, they're like they're they're always going to be there yeah they're my big bad bear in the east <laughs> this is up in the forest and the, the, but i'm not going to be distracted from the enemy the home enemy which is the far worse enemy right the the world enemy it is the Weltfeind. The, the, the Weltfeind. <laughs> it is though. It is. It is the. It is like basically the the world serpent. Yeah, and and uh, so like a book like this, mm. like it's definitely worth reading. Just yeah, I think it's good. I think it's worthwhile. And it's um, it's sort of a balance to the conventional narrative, which I like the conventional narrative better because it's more uh, it's more pro German in being like, yeah, you guys are awesome, and. And like, yeah, World War Two had to happen. Uh, and because like, you're these, just like the is, elite is, warriors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is like a slightly Jewish aspect that can be thrown in with that. Where it's, and he mentions that about the authoritarianism that yeah. like, well, Germany had to evolve toward authoritarianism implied that's bad. So therefore, the conventional narrative is bad because it implies the Germans are evolving toward authoritarianism. Yeah. It's this fucking like Finkelthink where... I, I don't know. I, I I wish there was like a national socialist uh, history of uh, German like military mm, tradition. Uh, That'd be an because yeah. that that history would take elements of Wilson and elements of like Chitano, and I think it would actually be more toward Chitano and the, the sort of conventional um, understanding of this. I'll throw in with that like. Speaking of the, you know, lionization or the uh, speaking highly of a, a defeated enemy who is now an ally in the case of the Germans, mm-hmm. um, like it, it used to be the case. I don't know if it still is, but they would have you know, barracks at German at Bundeswehr installations named after like Erwin Rommel. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, of course, been called into question in recent years because oh, Erwin Rommel was dead. Oh, or was he good? Did he actually uh, was he part of the coup against Hitler? OK, then he's good. Or was he not part of the coup? Of course, he wasn't. Right. Uh, Rommel was a good boy, did nothing wrong. <laughs> David Irving says so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then Rommel's, according to Zog, is bad and therefore Germans can't hold him up as a hero and see him as a hero because he was on the Hitler side. The Germans can only the see... The Russians did the same thing to Frederick the Great after the Second World War when they removed all the statues of him in Berlin. Oh, really? Yeah. And they didn't yeah. return him until the 60s or 70s in no, East there's Berlin. A, there's a street... Uh, I was staying at a hostel there a few years ago, and there's a street with all of Frederick the Great's marshals, like uh, big statues of them. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah. Hmm. Like, I uh, check that out some fun sidelets and stuff. Just like all kinds of obscure generals and stuff. Yeah, like big bronze statues of them. Oh, neat. I gotta check that out. I'm, maybe yeah. those were the ones that the Russians returned. Like, they might have. I, mean, I think those statues had been moved. They oh, were okay. always there. Because yeah. they did. They had a huge a huge statue of Frederick the Great. Because obviously Germany, you know, big history of that, especially in Berlin, right, obviously. Um, but they had removed, in all their occupational zones, they had removed all the statues and took them all elsewhere or whatever because they didn't want the people to be inspired by this great military hero that was all over the place. They'd remove, obviously, all the Hitler stuff or whatever, but they wanted to go further and they removed frederick as well yeah you know it is sort of odd because they returned it later though i mean some of it so it's it's sort of odd because if you're trying to get the germans to involve themselves in like nato war and support nato war um for you know plutocratic interests in in kiev and in, in the ukraine you have to get the liberals on board I mean, that's what Zaga has done. They've got the liberals on board with this war. I mean, Which is the insane. more liberal, the more the deeper into the city you go, the more Ukrainian flags you see. It's true. 
uh, along with the gay flag. It's like faggot flag and Ukraine flag. Yeah. Well, One that's what happens when your country is run by a gay Jew. So, like, Ukraine kind of got it, the perfect sympathy, right? But it's like this weird thing where, like, you can have white... It's like white identity. If you you know people are white and that they identify as white when they fly the, the faggot flag in Ukraine. Flag, <laughs> it's almost last like it's a last... Yeah, it's whiteness. <laughs> that is an awful thing to think about, but it is accurate. Because you do know that that's... That you do know you're in a white neighborhood or at least around whites that are, like... Just in general, you know you're around whites when you see those horrible symbols. Yeah, so like you you have to make German history and German military history like acceptable to those fags, those people, yeah. and a book like this does that. So it's it's good, well, it's think, good and bad. I I like the book. I don't think it's there and yet. I think, I think you can read this book and be like, yeah, actually, this is there's some counter historical things. That yeah, these. This isn't just about the Holocaust. You like, you read this book and you're either going to go one or two ways. You're either going to become a Nazi or you're going to, I don't know, I guess, think, well, I support NATO. Probably the latter, but because I would say that this, I would say this is part one that we're seeing in a rollout series of Zog historical rollbacks over the course of the next like five to ten years um as 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 or the duration of this game playing out with russia okay. until it goes 1984 and the other swing and then we're going to go over to china and then we're going to go back to russia and then china and then russia back and forth like again with the three empires in 1984 yeah but Same the Rus- russians are going to be the bad guys for a while right so Which what is, other what other narrative role swings are well that's the see? thing so this I, this is soft because I, I think i can i can still see a lot of leftists not agreeing with this um, just that, oh, it's a soft take on the Nazis. They're not hard enough. Blah, blah, blah. I feel like it's a soft blow in the slow denting of the armor over time. Because, um, again, they I think that Zog's not stupid enough to realize that they can just do a full 180. There's just no way in hell, right? Because if they were trying to do a full 180, they would just straight up just start flying swastikas and be like, yeah, Germany, you know that you fucking, you know, Blitzkrieg the shit, Operation Barbarossa, woo, yeah! Like, you know, like... Yeah, that would be pretty cool if we had, like, a 1984 switch where it's just like, okay, swastikas are now cool. Right, like a complete overnight Actually, shit. Actually, it would suck because then we couldn't fly the swastika. Could we- it wouldn't be a symbol of defiance anymore. Oh right, yeah, it'd be a, a symbol of the system. That yeah, would suck ass. But suck. but that's I, obviously they can't do that, right? They can't do Swazis. They can't fucking start saying that Operation Barbarossa was the greatest thing this side of um, you know Caesar or something, and then it, you know bring the Germans be yeah. like, oh yeah, produce more Leopard two A's and then send it all out to the to Belarus or whatever, right? Um, they can't do that. So over time they're going to probably do this soft the you get your good you get your good historians first the ones that can actually put together a, a solid not wouldn't say narrative but a solid cohesive argument against the system without actually going over the, the threshold i wouldn't say it's not against the system it's against the old narrative well like right creating the new narrative unfortunately though it is as you know one and the same at this point the system and the narrative they've created themselves as being this one problem so it's like this is counter system a counter narrative counter system it's like it's it's fringe enough to be considered um i would say it's it's like a it's edgy right like contemporary academics in that circle which is a joke as you know a circus uh they would consider this i think edgy at least slightly towards an edgy you're kind of like ooh, it's a little risque you know like they're like they, they flit around yeah, I mean, you're, you're a top like political you're a top historian like wilson you you can you have the social cachet right that you can and he doesn't go crazy with it he still justifies like you know your holocaust narrative bullshit and all of the crap he doesn't actually it's really in talk there lightly i mean yeah you he know, doesn't like, well, it, the point is that he 
he like he doesn't go against it. He just kind of he adds it in there as the cherry on top a little bit in certain parts, but it, like all, only at the very end. It's not even it's not even a problem. So anybody can read it. It's not a big deal. But the point is, is that he doesn't go hard, um, or he he go he goes hard enough, but not so hard on the 180 to where they're fully justifying things like uh, the proper um, mil the, the proper military uh, doctrines of the Wehrmacht and all this other stuff, like how they were doing it, how they were operating. They get into the nitty gritty of like, okay, this is how they won these battles against the Russians, or this is how you know they they're not going into they're not they're not putting up on screen yet Germans killing Russians. We're not seeing that yet. We're still seeing Russians killing Germans in theater, right? So it's it's not to that point in Hollywood where it's a full reversal or you, they're going to pull out of their ass some war or some battle in World War II where the Germans were somehow saving civilians from a Russian horde yeah. or some crazy shit. You know, there like, are movies sort of like that from the 70s, like Cross of Iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever seen that one? Mm-hmm. It's a movie about the Eastern Front. And it's from the German perspective. And the basic yeah. story is sort of a class war between the sergeant, who's like a badass, and the try-hard uh, Prussian aristocrat captain who just wants to get his knights cross. Right. And But overall, it's like a very pro-German movie because, like, the German soldiers are, you know, fighting against the Russians. And they're not, like, they don't just hate, they don't, like, hate the Russians fanatically or something. They're just, like, fighting the Russians because they have to. Right. It's sort of an anti-Vietnam movie, mm. weirdly. Um, but there's a few others like that uh, from from the 70s where the uh, it's what is now called the myth of the clean Wehrmacht. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, the original contention is the Wehrmacht wasn't the SS. The Wehrmacht didn't do war crimes. Oh, right, Wehrmacht yeah. is good. The Jewish counter narrative is, yes, the, the Wehrmacht also did war crimes, which is like Nobody did fucking war crimes. Like fuck you. They had a I mean, whole movie they, they, about like, that dichotomy with Fury with Brad Pitt, uh-huh. where that the whole narrative of the movie was just like he just like they let Wehrmacht soldiers go or whatever kind of thing, but like the SS they beat the shit out of kind uh-huh, of thing right. like, throughout the whole film. Like that was like they were talking about like oh yeah you know like the Wehrmacht just they're just doing their duty where they but the SS they're the real assholes or whatever. And that's like the whole film and it came out like that was the shittiest movie of all time. It came out like 2014 or something. That yeah. was like the shittiest, most retarded movie. I. It was, has the, a nice whole, the whole end battle movie. scene of like a disabled tank like standing up against a whole SS regiment. I was like, get Come the fuck out. It was so fantastic. Fuck you. This is retarded. But that was the same narrative there, though, is that it's not the fair market, it's the SS. Um, and then you, but this, I think, is part of that that style of rollout over time. Well, I mean, because it's like, yo, the SS was diverse, though. <laughs> <laughs> but that's but that's the thing is like things like this is going to open the floodgates for other shit down the line of of the uh, the, the, the strange diversity of the of the german forces right like the the pan the pan national socialist ideology that came after it or whatever you know like that that opens the doors for that kind of shit because people are going to see the seeks of the turbans and they're like wait a minute and then they're going to remember those guys down at the mall that also have swastikas but they have turbans and then you can't say anything about it they're gonna be like oh shit <laughs> maybe there's something to this this ideological holdover like maybe there is some kind of yeah i mean it's like maybe it makes sense to organize people based on their like racial and cultural groups it doesn't mean we have to be like constantly slaughtering each other right. or hating each other it's like yeah fact, but, it prevents but, but right it does make sense and it, it creates a more just society when you organize people based on racial and cultural groups, which means segregation. Right. And some some type, which it, is, you know, you have your Sikh regiment. You're not integrating your Sikh regiment with your Norwegians and no. your, your Bosnians. <laughs> They're all in separate <laughs> fucking divisions. Yeah. You know, it's like you can't. 
you can't do that to the Sikhs, you know, with the Bosnians. That's not right. <laughs> but no, so yeah, but you have you have the ability to have all these different groups and situations. Obviously, violence and uh, animosity and all that stuff goes down with segregation, right? With the separation of the groups, whatever the heck, you do have a better um, ability to develop intercultural ties and whatnot on a on a healthy basis. So, but at, that kind of goes beyond the beyond the pale of the scope of obviously this book book has nothing to do with that really um but it, it you can see how there's a but it actually kind of does because it talks about the other aspects of german culture which was at the time massively philosophical a lot of our great philosophical thinkers of the 1800s all come from germany anthropological ones historical uh historical uh, figureheads of the 1800s yeah, yeah, germany uh, was the intellectual old, powerhouse you, of europe from yeah. definitely by 1850 and like until the mid 20th century easily and, you know it's funny you read i was reading a book about like because i'm reading this about like americans uh it was about american like lawyers in the south and people in the 1700s and it was quite the fashion actually back then to go and study in germany mm -hmm. like yeah. for southerners and for yankees as well to go and study at like good again or Halle, and you had these old prestigious institutions, yeah. Which is really doesn't fit well with the idea <laughs> that America is just uh, tied to England. Right. These all. guys, you know, they did go study at Oxford and Cambridge, too. But they were like, oh, well, Germany is the cutting edge of all the humanities. Right. So if you really want to polish up go to germany not to mention that like all of our chefs are trained in france <laughs> like well as if food and philosophy are are equals some would say that they were <laughs> well uh we can get down cato the elder uh sucked and was wrong about everything <laughs> but he was right about one thing and that is that the chef is the lowest slave in your household wow that is a hardcore <laughs> statement <laughs> because having a good chef is decadent and greek I don't know which side of the coin I want to sit on because <laughs> they're both great. Um, Do you sit on coins? When you flip it, you can, you know, you, however that saying would go, I suppose. I like to like yeah, mix and match saying. this. Little, yeah, yeah, I do like, too. I, like, I mix and match them because it's like, screw it. Whatever. The trees are greener on the other side. Yeah, like, you know, whatever. Which side of the fence you want to jump on? You know, like, <laughs> you know just dumb shit. Um, Two stones in the bush are better than bird in hand. Or like, you said like three birds in the bush or something. Yeah, like, I, like who knows what nature is anymore? These are all like, <laughs> fuck nature. These expressions don't mean anything. Yay. We're all we're all buck Dystopian people. Dystopian future. <laughs> but um Uh yeah, well so we ought to wrap up. It's been a been a fun episode. We're just right, right. uh wanted to briefly talk about this book and uh you know German military history. I do, you know, this book has inspired me. I think I ought to read a book on a history of the Austrian military. There are a couple out there hmm. in English. I don't know what there's available in German. Uh, I'm sure a read, lot. Reading a German book is like, like I can do it, but it takes me about four times as long <laughs> as reading an English book. Um, but I should, you know, stop being a lazy fuck and just do it. <laughs> but there, no, the, the Austrian military, you know, it, it's... That is a point that Wilson makes, and it's it's like kind of cool. But Austria is like that cornerstone in the south east yeah. of like the Western European civilization, and so and they they were from 
eighteen or sixteen eighty or so until what you know until World War One really like a major power. Yeah, for sure. And you don't get to be that way if you're just decadent. So like you're right. you gotta have you gotta have something going for you. They yeah they weren't they they, they, they their had, problem they was that they just were, they, they they tried to they acquired too many non Germanic peoples into their society. Yeah, and then they organized them. They did the Roman thing. They. They well, they did the Russian thing too. I mean, the mm. Russian Empire was kind of like that. It was very a, multicultural. Yeah. Multicultural, but the thing is, like, the Russian Empire had a bigger bulk of great Russians that it could rely on right. to fill out its regiments. Where the Austrians were the opposite. There was, yeah, exactly. They they had so few Germans, and they weren't really they weren't connected with the rest of Germany. Uh, you know, even Holy Roman Empire times, even like you know, sixteen eighty, like the Habsburgs only controlled like some pieces of the Holy Roman Empire, and even those like Bohemia weren't you know, fully German or even mostly German. Right. So your your officer, you have to you need your officers to be Germans because those are the ones. Who, I mean, for the most part, at least, you need a, a a core of people who all speak the same language and all have the same educations uh, and all are dependable and loyal to the state in order to have a really good army. But, and you can fill out your regiments with like Slovaks and Croats and Hungarians and Italians and everything else. But it's uh, you know, it's obviously going to cause problems eventually. Yeah, the breakdowns of situations we saw that in World War One. That was the that was like the end. That's that's basically the the sad culmination to any type of Habsburg dominance in Europe was World War One. But yeah. Hitler Hitler fixed it though. Anschluss. Well, I mean, uniting, well, for Habsburgs anyway, that doesn't really that's yeah. The well, end fuck of that. them. But <laughs> uh, but Austria though, like yeah, integrating Austria with Germany. Okay, brilliant, makes sense. That's the way it should have been. Uh, integrating Switzerland with Germany. That would have made sense. You know, funny thing about Switzerland. Did you know the Allies bombed Switzerland like several times in World War II? On purpose? Uh, it was an accident. Oh. Um, several accidents. So I thought the Swiss had like a very serious air air, uh, air defense system. They did. They were like, they would shoot you down. Did they down for, any Allied for, aircraft? Oh, yeah. Oh. They downed Allied aircraft, German aircraft. Like they were, they were very much like... We're a neutral country. Yeah, get the fuck Therefore, out. you cannot fly over our country and bomb another country because then then the other, you know, the country you just bombed is going to be like, yo, Switzerland, what the fuck? They just are flying over your country. That's an act of aggression on us. Duh. Everybody understands this. Right. Uh, so Switzerland was shooting down anybody that flew over the country. And the allies a uh, couple times, actually, like, like a few hundred people died. I mean, really? Yeah. God damn it. The Allies are war criminals to the max. Like every oh, time yeah. you like the more No, the war, Germans never bombed Switzerland or I don't, it might have been some minor incident. But like no, the Allies bombed Switzerland. Yeah, see like every time you delve like delve into like World War II in any serious capacity, you find nothing but just like the You find most crazy shit. Fractions Actually, of fucking warfare. This, this, and is, the this is where parts. we can finish because there is there was a great article on Unce Review. Unce is my favorite Jew. Uh, <laughs> there was a great article on Unce Review recently where he summed up he kind of writes the same article a zillion times about World War II revisionism, and then he just adds like a little bit new, and then he he summarizes all the things that he's come to in the past and takes credit for them, like a <laughs> but it's still it's still a, it's still a great article. He mentions a bunch of things about you know just World War II revisionism. One of them is that the that Churchill was seriously talking about dropping anthrax bombs all over Germany. Anthrax, <laughs> yeah. 
See, that's some stupid shit that fat fuck would goddamn do. <laughs> fat fuck? No, Jesus. Churchill was, was evil. He was a piece of shit. There was, and there was Let a- it all be known throughout all of history, 10,000 years from now, when an anthropologist somehow comes across his audio log that I believe Winston Churchill is <laughs> a piece a of shit. There was a book, too, written in 2015. I forget the title. Uh, Unst mentions it in that article. I'll, I'll post the article. Uh, about Churchill. Conventional historian. This is not, not you know, Garamar Rudolph writing this. <laughs> Not that he's wrong. Germa Rudolph. Well, right, of course he is. Right. I'm just saying, like, this is a, a court historian and yeah. accepted, like, he gets the salary from Jew plutocracy. He wrote a book about Churchill's finances. <laughs> I bet that's great. And, like, Churchill... Churchill loved his nice shit. He liked his really nice things. And I'm people sure like that did. are easy to buy. Oh, yeah. As, as you know, as anybody knows. So, yeah. Uh, the, the other... Yeah, there were some other like tidbits of gold in there so the anthrax bombs on germany and it's like you know if you're gonna do anthrax bombs on germany then hitler could have he never did but he could have equipped uh the v2s with like sarin gas yeah uh they had sarin gas the germans had sarin gas bombs they they were far ahead of the allies uh in in chemical warfare i hate that the germans didn't just fucking go balls out that's the one regret like- <laughs> and hitler never ordered the use of sarin gas or or Tabun. And uh, the other one that stuff. they talked about seriously in, Nuclear I want to say it was UFOs. in 1940. So it was when the Molotov on Ribbentrop Pact was still in effect and mm. the Soviets were not fighting the Germans. They talked about launching a bombing raid from like Iran or from the Middle East on uh, the Baku oil fields. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wild mission. What? Did they ever, they, I'm they, they obviously did didn't this. do it, but yeah. they, t- they talked very seriously about doing that. Mm. Because they and, and that was a big problem with World War One too is getting Germany or regarding Britain's goals is to get Germany's influence out of the Middle East. I can imagine there's still some holdover animosity wise in the old crones that run our government with that kind of nonsense, um, associating Iraq and things and Iran with. Oh, like with how Germany. the Iraqi government during World War Two there was a, a coup d'état by what was his name Rashid or something or other a pro-german coup d'etat yeah. in baghdad that was supported the germans didn't support it as much as they probably should have they sent some luftwaffe pilots and planes to go help they out really the iraqis yeah. the iraqis got like wrecked by the british but there was also god this is so, there was also a pogrom in baghdad of the jews as soon as the british took back over or no sorry as soon as the german or as soon as the rashid pro-german coup took over the baghdadis went and like pogromed the jews <laughs> oh my god what what happened yeah well, i mean i don't know it just got pogromed oh um, like their little trinket shops got torn up and like <laughs> watermelons got like thrown all over the streets oh man all right well that's Cover Baghdad. So yeah, you know the Iraqis. The Iraqis were uh, not exactly pro-British, right? And that's kind of the thing is that that's most ne- of these Middle Easterners were not pro-British, and they never have been for a while because they consider them a colonial power. And Britain had like traditionally in this. The book again kind of touches on like this. I think there's like a couple of sentences that kind of go over this, where it talks about how just and well liked the German colonial forces were in comparison to like the British, From, the Belgium, the right. Portuguese. I've the, heard this, that know, the Germans were the French, basically the nicest colonialists. Yeah. Uh, except maybe the, who else was nice? The Italians are horrible. Yeah. Uh, and not horrible, but like they, yeah, we were like 
they weren't as bad as the British. No, oh, yeah, nobody yeah, really. Not, yeah, the British okay. and the French, I think, were the worst. We built all the railroads and the hospitals in Ethiopia. Were the Belgians somehow? Were they somehow like the worst? I don't know. How I think that, that allegedly the Belgians were the worst. I don't yeah. know. That might just be propaganda. There's only one incident of or one incident of that. The British kind of have like a global <laughs> global problem. Same with the French. But who would be better than the the Germans then? Because uh, that's uh, like, no, well, let's not say better. Let's say nicer. Right, 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 right. Nicer. Right. We're not we, yeah. that. Maybe being meaner is better. I don't know. Yeah, it depends on where uh, you're at. I'm not yeah. making a qualitative uh, judgment here. Yeah. Uh, Although, to be ni- fair... Th- who is nicer than the Germans yeah. in colonial... Not the French, not the British, not the Italians. Definitely not the Dutch. Not, definitely not the Russians. Uh, yeah. The Danes? I don't even think so, because I'm pretty they sure they put... have a- colonies? Yeah, Greenland. Look at this, it fucking counts. Greenland does count. They no, have a lot of native count. populations oh, that, that okay. the Vikings at oh, one point okay. in time, they called them the Skraling Yar, and they put them to the sword, like the nasty little pygmies they are. Like Donald Trump's uh, best idea was we should, America should buy Greenland. <laughs> that was the like Danes? the coolest idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's real politic, if we're talking about German militarism. <laughs> buy Greenland as the U.S. That'd be absurd. But yeah, no, I, I don't, honestly, there's not really many other people that have colonies whatsoever. Um, and the Brit- the Germans had kind of the best as far as their military occupations were concerned and the way they treated the people. Um, obviously, they had a very heavy-handed fist that if you screwed with us, then we're going to march your whole tribe out of the desert and you're all going to starve to death. But whatever, I mean, like, name a colon- name a, a colonial incident. Yeah, look, if you're, if you're, in, in if you're sniping at our troops, you're going to fuck you up. Like, yeah, that's just a it thing. It's what it is. It's always been a thing. Yeah, Sorry. so, yeah, just no apologies, get over it. <laughs> like, shit happens in war. Yeah. So, but yeah, and that's kind of the thing with with the 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 book, and we can end specifically there. I'd say is that shit happens in war, and that's basically what they've been saying about the German ways of war is that it's not some continuous thing throughout history that inevitably leads in, uh, you know, uh, the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. Like that's not the inevitable end of Germany is based on their entire history, even if their military history is not an inevitable end at Hitler. Yeah, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. It's not enough. It's not. It was not inevitable that Germany would be forced to fight World War II. I'm not. Right. Even, and I'm obviously not even going to say start World War II. It right. was the forced war. It was by Britain. Right. Uh, Britain started it. Yes, they did. And not to shed on British people because it wasn't their fault. But yeah, but Churchill, it, Churchill it, it, and it is the Jews. Is. Church, correction. Churchill and the Jews started World War II. Church or Jews through Churchill started World War II. Yes. Yeah. I think we can end there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you for listening and check out the book if you are so inclined. It's it's good to compare this book, uh, Wilson's book, with uh, Chitano's book. Maybe yeah. it's Citano. I don't know if he's Hispanic or <laughs> Spanish or Italian. I say Chitano. Maybe it's Citano. Some Latin. Some, yeah. Something's Latin. So, yeah, people. but the book is Iron and Blood by Peter Wilson. If you guys need to check that out, highly recommend you guys read it. Uh, and anything else that, honestly, he's written, if you're looking into um, serious deep dives into Central European history um, or Germanic history, uh, for that matter. All right. And until next time, Sikha. Sikha.